This is Ron Stockton. I really don't like commenting on a political situation in the middle of that situation. We can never be certain how it will work out. But if there's widespread interest in a situation, and that situation is getting significant attention, and if I have some insights, I'm willing to take a risk. Like much of the rest of the world, I've been watching for the past 30 plus weeks as Israel appears to be disemboweling itself. Well, maybe that's an overstatement. But we see something emerging from the cocoon of Jewish nationalism that is ugly and ominous. Of course, ugly and ominous are things we have seen elsewhere, including our own country. Netanyahu is not much different from Trump, Orban, Putin, Modi, or Bolsonaro. These are the strong men who mobilize an ethnic or religio-ethnic base to stay in power and to manipulate the rules to make sure they are not subject to unpleasant checks from the legal and political system. I'm reminded of what David Ben-Gurion, the Israeli founding father, once said about his desire for Israel to be a normal state. He said he looked forward to a time when a Jewish cop would arrest a Jewish John for going to a Jewish prostitute. Then we would know that Israel was normal, i.e. it was no better and no worse than any other country in the world. Congratulations, Israel, you made it. To me, what is happening in Israel and what is happening in the United States have disturbing parallels. I was one of those people who believed in the liberal state, meaning a political system rooted in constitutional regulations and respect for the people who lived in my country. A decade ago, I saw my country moving in a positive direction, becoming more open towards personal choices and differences and more open towards acknowledging some of the darker elements of our national history. I knew that dark side was still out there, but I, along with many others, underestimated how powerful it was. Let's look at what's happening in Israel first. I recently heard an Israeli analyst say there were three fundamental divisions in Israel that are now working themselves out. First, there is the liberal Western-oriented Israel that is struggling to resist its opposite. These are the people of Tel Aviv who want to go for a drive on Saturday without having stones thrown at their car, who want to eat Chinese food with what Israelis call white meat, who want to marry someone the rabbis would not approve of without having to fly to Cyprus, who want homosexuals to be fully accepted into Israeli society who want to see Israeli Arabs given full rights. Individuals should be able to make their own choices, to live a life as they wish, and to be fully embraced by the laws of the state. Needless to say, there are people on the exact opposite side of each of these issues. As in our own country, these are often zero-sum conflicts. You either give gays full rights or you ban books about them in the schools. There's not much of a middle ground. Second, there are the religious parties who also want to be empowered and privileged and even enriched by the state. They want their young men to spend decades studying the Torah, to be exempted from military service, to be given generous subsidies from the state, and to see their leaders given key ministries in the cabinet, such as the education portfolio. This is what Thomas Jefferson warned us against in his Declaration of Religious Freedom. You can believe what you want, but don't pressure anyone else to believe it, and keep your hands off of the treasury. The Israelis are now fighting this battle. 
So are we. The third division is between those of the settler block who want to annex the West Bank, or most of it, fully into Israel. Many of them also think the Palestinians should be reduced to subject status or even pushed away into neighboring countries. They often talk of Jordan as a logical target for this expansion, which they euphemistically call transfer. They're very powerful in the Israeli political system and have key political leaders who represent their perspective in the cabinet. I would say that the fourth variable in this equation is the personality of Benjamin Netanyahu. Sometimes I have referred to Netanyahu as a leader unto darkness and death. This may sound a bit extreme or even intemperate, but to be honest, I think he is setting his country up for a serious fall. It will occur when he is off the scene, but it is clearly on the way. When James Madison wrote Federalist 10, he said there were three forces that can tear a political system apart. All three are familiar to us today. One is the struggle over the control of resources. The second is religio-ideological struggles between those with intense passions that they would like to impose upon the whole society. The third is the tendency to become loyal to a personality, a demagogue. Uh, in case you don't know that term, a demagogue is someone who stirs up and mobilizes the fears and hatreds of one part of the society against another part to enhance his or her own power. Hmm. These Madisonian divisions appear to reflect the tension now exploding in Israel and in our own country. I don't mean to suggest that if Netanyahu and Trump disappeared from the scene, things would cool down. The forces have now been unleashed, and they will not be easily contained. But these two men are unique leaders whose personalities were almost essential to the emergence of the situation we find ourselves in today. Another Israeli analyst, a bit more cynical perhaps, recently said that there is a division between what he calls fantasy Israel and Judea. Fantasy Israel is the one that many American Jews carry around in their minds, with a lot of help from Israeli PR activists. This is the Israel of liberal Jews, very Western in their thinking and behavior, often speaking with perfect, even American-accented English. They're very pro-American. They're confronted with an implacable Arab enemy, determined to drive them into the sea. And yet their army clings to its values. It retains the principle of the purity of arms, as they call it. They never use violence unless as a last resort. They will risk their own lives to spare innocent Palestinians. This Israel is deeply committed to a liberal democratic state clinging to the values of, of equality and fair play. Who would not be impressed? On the other side, according to the analyst, there is Judea. This is the world of the settlers. They are racist, to be sure, but on the other hand, as they see it, they are only seeking the land that God promised the Jews. And they are being fiercely assaulted by those implacable enemies that Jews remember from ages past. They are the enemies trying to finish what Hitler started. And the Palestinians are Amalek, revived, the treacherous biblical enemies who attack the Jews from behind. And as the Bible says, their names must be erased. It is a hard command, but it is what the Bible orders Jews to do.
Just this summer, I happened to meet an Israeli. He was an American by birth, someone who had finished a career in U.S. intelligence and then made Aliyah, i.e. emigrated to his homeland. I asked him where he lived. He said, I live in that place that the Western media call the West Bank, but its true name is Judea. Pause. Do you know what Judea means? Pause. It means the land of the Jews. Pause. It is our land. It has always been our land. This came completely out of the blue, as if we were on a mission to make a point. Then he told me that Donald Trump was the best president Israel ever had. He gave us East Jerusalem. He gave us the Golan. He gave us weapons. And he gave us the Abraham Accords, which will integrate us into the Arab world. These are the two Israels. How did this happen? I'm thinking back to the novel Alt Neuland by Theodore Herzl. Herzl was the political genius whose 1896 essay, Der Judenstaat, was the beginning of modern political Zionism. Starting the very next year at Basel, he set in motion the institutional emergence of the state. Then in 1902, he published a novel about the Jewish state as he saw how it would be. A Jew living in that new state is visited by his English friend, who is given a guided tour of the land. They are getting ready to have an election, and there is a Jewish racist who is a candidate. I can't remember the specifics of the text, but it goes something like this. Of course, there are Jewish extremists and Jewish racists, but we know how to handle those people. We'll have an election, and he will be defeated. The problem with this observation is that that book was being written by someone living in Austria, perhaps the most liberal of all Jewish places. In a place such as that, a Jewish racist would be told by his fellow Jews to shut up. But in a different environment, today's environment, that would not be true. For example, today's West Jerusalem, where a majority of new babies are from Orthodox families. Or the West Bank Jewish settlements in Hebron or Nablus, where the settler mindset dominates. Some of those think they, the assassin of Yitzhak Rabin is a hero. In such places, racist or extremist views are not suppressed. They are reinforced and empowered. Herzl would be stunned. Once I went with a study group to visit the Jewish settlement in the middle of Hebron. This is also known to be one of the most militant of all Jewish settlements. We met with the leader of that community, he was very forceful in his anti-Palestinian perspectives. One of our group who was Jewish was upset by his views and said, this is not the way I was brought up. We were taught to think differently. The settler looked directly in her eye. He, the settler looked her directly in the eye and said, do you know what the Torah says? It says, kill them. He smashed his fist down onto the table in a way that would intimidate and silence a critic. I've seen other Israelis do this when they want to intimidate their critics. And he cited religious passages, not about retaliation, but about anticipatory preemptive killing. Purity of arms, it was not. These two people, my friend and the settler leader, reflected the two forces that are today struggling for dominance, for the right to define the future of Israel. I doubt if any of you have read Philip's Roth's book, The Counter-Life. It won quite a few awards when it was released, 
In this book, Roth's alter eagle, Zuckerman, goes to Israel and encounters these alternative worldviews. Uh, in fact, Zuckerman lives these alternative lives, but that is Roth's literary style, not relevant to this podcast. I love that book, by the way. What is so memorable about that book is that Zuckerman lives and explains these alternative worldviews to us, the readers, who realize that each view is logical and persuasive once it is viewed from its own position. That is what is frightening. That extremist violence can be logical from the perspective of someone who does not consider it extremist at all, but merely logical. There was a major study of American thinking written in 2002. It was called American Grace. The researchers, Putnam and Campbell, discovered that the current generation of young people were the most open and flexible of any generation in American history. They were respectful of people dramatically different from themselves in terms of race, religion, sexual preference, personal lifestyles, political values. And why is this? It is because our current society allows people to interact with people very different from themselves. And what this research shows is that if we know anyone not like us, we become more open towards all people not like us. If your cousin is lesbian, you are more open to Baptists or Jews. If your club has whites and blacks, you become more open to Buddhists. Today, two-thirds of us have a family member not like us. Of our five best friends, 24% say all are like us. 17% say none. The average is 2.6. We have a lot of variety in our relationships. Not surprisingly, Mormons and Muslims are the least accepted. And why is that? Not because those who know them realize their views are more bizarre than others. In fact, the reasoning is the exact opposite. They are least accepted because so few Americans know anything about them as individuals. They are simply containers with labels into which we pour whatever we wish. For example, two-thirds of Americans do not know a Muslim. And the perspectives of those who do know a Muslim and those who do not are very different. Separation is a danger. Sad to say, in an America growing more open and accepting, 10% of us are less open. They're closed and rigid. These are the ones among us who did not get the memo. Who are these people who, to borrow from William F. Buckley, are standing in the middle of the road shouting, Stop! Turn back! And looking about for political leaders who share and reflect their values. Such people have five traits. Let me read them to you. One, they are more religious than average, politically religious in a way that immerses them into an enclosed culture. Second, they are very conservative on sexual issues, homosexuality and abortion, maybe even centrally focused on those issues. Third, they have strong religious views on good and evil. By that I mean they view those who disagree with them as coming from a point of evil values and assumptions. Four, they feel threatened by other groups, threatened physically, threatened culturally, threatened politically. And five, they mix with people like themselves. I used to tell my students, forming a study group to get through my next exam will do more good for opening your mind to others than any number of speakers 
or programs on our campus. Putnam and Campbell discussed the centrality of two concepts, bridging and bonding. Both concepts address how individuals link to others. Bonding means linking with people like yourself, for example, in a religious study group. Bridging means linking with individuals not like yourself, maybe in Kiwanis or a neighborhood association. Both patterns are healthy, but bonding without bridging can produce harmful narrowness. Most Americans do a lot of bridging. It has made our country a better place. Some of us stick with bonding. This has enabled opportunistic politicians to mobilize our divisions for political gain. Perhaps the concept of the public square might be helpful to illustrate the alternative to conflict as Israelis and Americans are now experiencing it. The Dutch came up with something similar in the beginning of the 20th century when they found themselves divided by tensions between Catholics and Protestants. Their solution was that Catholics would have their own zone and Protestants would have their zone and never the twain shall meet. For example, there are Catholic universities and Protestant universities. In your own zone, the Dutch used the term Zwielen, which means column, you could implement whatever practices you considered consistent with your teaching. But those teachings would not extend beyond your space. You would, you would not try to impose them upon the other zone. And there was a public area where religious or community thinking did not apply. It was neutral. For Americans, that meant that religious thinking would not penetrate the law. We would have a public law that allowed divorce, even if Catholics did not approve of divorce. If Catholics wanted to avoid the public courts, they could observe Catholic law and remain married. And if an evangelical city clerk did not approve of gay marriage and did not want to issue a license, an associate could issue it. But the public sphere, where divorce and gay marriage were legal, was beyond religious authority. Today, when an immigrant applies to enter Holland, they have to view an introductory video. It shows men holding hands, prostitutes in windows, sexy young women in skimpy bikinis, protesters engaging in symbolic desecration of religious images. They are told, this is Holland. Not all of us like these things, but we tolerate them so that we can live together in one country. If you don't think you can live in a country that tolerates such things, please reconsider your application. That's the public square, a way to live with people whose views you do not accept, or maybe don't even respect. But what blew up the political system, both in the United States and in Israel, was when religio-ethnic groups began to invade the public square with their teachings and to insist that they become the obligatory laws of the land. And when religious groups begin to insist that they be allowed access to public funding for their religious schools and projects. That created even more troubles. In Israel, letting religious youths be exempted from military service in a country where everyone was expected to serve created serious problems, as did ever-increasing demands for budgetary allocations for religious schools and separate curricula that left out common units on shared values and identity. These conflicts now roiling the United States and Israel look different when seen as different species of trees, but when looked at from a distance, the forests look very similar. Once the public square was under siege, 
conflict escalation was inevitable. That is what I think is going on in Israel and the United States. There are groups of people who live in what we call a bubble. They only know people like themselves. They only listen to media that reinforces their thinking. In Israel, it's the settlers who live in isolated communities surrounded by people whose land they occupy, or the ultra-Orthodox communities in Jerusalem and other places who see the true religion threatened by secular Westerners using the political and judicial system to maintain and enhance their power and domination. In the United States, it is the Republican Party, which is almost entirely a white party. I know, I know, there are Hispanics and Muslims and African Americans who are Trumpists, but by and large, it is not the pattern. Those who dominate that party and shape its thinking are people whose backgrounds are more like mine than the people I just mentioned. These were the people who embraced the events of January 6, 2021. Many of them still believe that the election of 2020 was stolen. Many are determined to reverse that outcome. If they succeed, it will produce a history that few of us could imagine. In Israel, there are consequences that I have discussed in a different podcast, the Black Swan podcast, if you're interested. It has to do with the fact humans don't handle protracted stress very well, especially when it involves danger and potential violence, either from within or from without. The fact is that many Israeli Jews have options to live in different countries. They have dual passports and could move to the EU or the U.S. if they wished. As these cultural and political and religious and economic conflicts escalate, more and more of them will decide to pack it in and leave. And of course, they will be the ones with the skills to head out. 3,000 Israeli physicians have joined a website for doctors seeking to leave the country. A hundred persons a day are joining a WhatsApp for people seeking to move. And 600,000 Israelis have already lived abroad a sufficient time that the Israeli government no longer considers them a part of its population base. Once again, let's turn to Philip Roth, who discussed what might happen in his 1993 novel, Operation Shylock. In this story, a fake Roth goes to Israel preaching what he calls diasporaism that the Jews should exit Israel and return to the lands from which they came. At a certain point in the future, the population decline would become such that the Israeli military would have to give up the occupied territories and strike a deal with the Palestinians. Of course, this is fiction, but the fact is that it sees perpetual conflict leading to an outcome that few of us could see as forthcoming. And why write fiction, if not to tell the truth? It is now early August 2023. In Israel, there have been over 30 weeks of massive demonstrations. Sometimes up to 200,000 Israelis have been in the streets. They are protesting against the effort to strip the Supreme Court of the power to strike down laws or executive actions that violate the fundamental laws of the state. And sometimes there are massive protests on the other side. Both of these countries, Israel and the United States, are facing significant dangers. We cannot assume that either will emerge from these conflicts as what it was a decade ago. 
I'm sorry to leave you with such a negative assessment of the future, but thanks for listening.